Hi everyone, we're continuing on uh, with the, the readings from the, the lectionary in this season as we approach Easter, this journey uh, as it were to the cross uh, that, we, that we are tracing through the Gospels. And so um, as I share uh, here now, um, I'm going to be uh, kind of working through the passage step by step as it were. So you might want to um, have a quick look at the passage now. Um, you might want to pause and, um, and go, go to your Bibles and, and have a look uh, for John 12, 20 to 33. That's John 12, 20 to 33. Okay. If you've, um, if you've had a read through that passage... Um, if you paused for a moment there, um, you can um, follow along with me as I, as I sort of pick it apart a little bit. Uh, beginning verse 20, it says, Now there were some Greeks amongst those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. This paragraph about some, some Greeks coming uh, to Jesus is an interesting little detail that, that actually gets no further comment uh, in John's Gospel. In fact, uh, it, nothing is said about whether Jesus even interacts back with these Greek, uh, presumably men, but some Greek people who came to see him. Uh, the purpose of the mention of this little, uh, little incident in the narrative of John's Gospel is that it serves to signify something about the imminence of Jesus' death. Jesus' earthly ministry was primarily directed to his own people, the Jews. But one of the things I think that John is signaling here by mentioning, mentioning this detail about the Greeks coming is that while his life ministry was directed to his people, the Jews, the, the nation of Israel, his death would go beyond that in its concern. His death would be for all. Jews and Gentiles. And so the interest of the Greeks that we read about uh, in this passage seems to notify Jesus of the nearness of his death. As it says, we would read on here in verse 23, Jesus replied to Andrew and Philip as they come to him with this request from the Greeks. Jesus replied, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. So Jesus hears that uh, there's some Greeks who are looking for him, and it's a sign to him that the hour of his glorification is near, is at hand. And in the Gospel of John, if you find this term glorification, uh, it refers as it generally as it does in this instance to Jesus' crucifixion. 
it's a moment where the ministry of Christ and what he does breaks out of just some sort of focus and attention on the Jewish nation and becomes something of relevance to all people and indeed all creation. At this point, John uh, gives us an account of Jesus going on to speak some challenging but glorious words in which I believe we will hear the echo of some of the teaching and preaching over the last few weeks, I think, of where we started in Mark 8 and 9 when Jesus speaks of giving his life away as the kingdom coming in power. Verse 24 of John 12 says this very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus sees before him the cross and his suffering and his death and in it and beyond it the fruitfulness of a greater life. The Gospel of John uses the phrase an abundant life. So on the other side of the seed of his life dying and going into the ground, Jesus sees an abundant life, an abundant crop of life. He goes on in verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me, Jesus says, must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. My Father will honour the one who serves me. There is a spiritual principle at play here in Jesus's words. Jesus uh, uh, sort of speaks to us in a sense that we might understand as a kind of kingdom principle that in order to gain, we must give. But this isn't just a kind of practical wisdom about discipline. You know, there, there is a principle in this life that uh, in order to achieve something, we need to be willing to, to, to make sacrifices. If we want to, uh, to buy that house, we need to have a budget and to put savings away. And that might feel like a little death week by week when it deprives us of that extra coffee or whatever it is. Uh, we might think of, a, of an athlete as well, having to get up early in the morning in order to, 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 to win the race months down the track. And of course, that is a truism that, that in order to gain something, some things we need to sacrifice some things. But what Jesus is saying, he goes beyond that kind of earthly wisdom. The, the thing that Jesus is saying here puts us in mind of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he, he speaks about the cross, which Jesus is speaking about, in terms of foolishness to those who are perishing in the world. Foolishness to the Greeks, he says, and a stumbling block to the Jews. For those who cannot receive 
what is going on in the person of Christ and his death here. It is absurd that uh, he should die for uh, the purposes that God would, would fulfill in his Messiah, for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the world that goes against so much earthly wisdom, that God should die, that God should come as a, as a child, a human child, live a life and go on to suffer and die. We talked about how, you know, Peter rejected it in uh, Mark 8. And, uh, and Jesus points to the fact that it seems to uh, make no sense in the world. He says, Peter, get behind me. Get behind me, Satan, he says. You're thinking in worldly terms, in a worldly sense. I'm speaking something that comes from somewhere else. So Jesus is taking us beyond the, the natural language of sacrifice and gain into something a lot deeper here, that something great should be obtained by his death in particular and the dying of those who would follow him as his servants. I'll go on here. I believe what's going on here is the reason that Peter uses this, Peter, I've just been talking about Peter, Jesus uses this hyperbolic phrase that they must, that we must as his servants, hate our lives. Jesus doesn't intend here that his servants, his disciples should be those people that you really don't want to get stuck speaking to at a party, you know, the ones that I'm talking about, they're kind of like a spiritual uh, Eeyore from, uh, from, um, from Winnie the Pooh. They don't have anything positive to say about what's going on in the world and in their lives because they're so heavenly minded, right? Or maybe, uh, you know, all they see is the problems in the world. You've been stuck next to that person. You're not that person, are you? I don't think Jesus is saying that we, we should be, as his servants, just miserable people, negative people, people who can't see anything good about the life we're living. He is using that phrase as a hyperbole to, to communicate something. What he's saying is that his servants, his disciples, should be people who, understanding the value of this good, mostly good life in the world that we have, temporal though it may be. So we're here, what, for 80 years, maybe? And it's a mix of good and bad. There's some things that are so wonderful, family, love, food, but also challenges, right? Jesus is saying that when we consider our life, in this world relative to the abundant and eternal life on the other side of the death that he died and the death that we follow him in, a perspective comes that would, would, would make some sense of saying we should hate this life that is often so good. Uh, the kids and I uh, and Sharon just recently watched uh, the film Mrs. Doubtfire. I don't know if you've seen it. You probably 
watched it quite a long time ago if you have uh, like we um, did and I forgot how poignant it was it's not just Robin Williams being a dope and dressing up as an old lady uh, if you remember the film I remember it as one of the first films that actually touched on the reality of of divorce uh, which was quite something because so many of my friends as a as I was a child, were going through this kind of stuff. And it was it had an effect on me when it came out to see these issues dealt with. But anyway, Robin Williams and Sally Field in, in, in the story of Mrs. Doubtfire, they're, they're separating, right? They're divorcing. And uh, there's this scene in, I guess, the family courtroom where the judge is making a decision about custody. And um, Robin Williams, in, in, in the movie, he's an actor. And um, his life's a, like a little bit unpredictable and a little bit of a mess. And, and for those reasons, some other ones, even though he's a loving father who lives for his kids, the, the, the judge hands down the ruling that his time with his kids is going to be limited to one day a week. And, and his character says, I can't live with one day a week with my children he's like my children are my life it's like saying to me you need to go without air or you need to go without water or you need to go without food such is the level of deprivation Robin Williams is saying he would feel at only being able to see his children once a week now you can bet if you or I were in that circumstance as a loving parent and uh, we received a, a, a ruling like that where we could only see our kids one day a week, wouldn't that just be the most precious day of the week? We would be able, we, you know, it would be so important for us to suck every moment out of that. To in, we would enjoy that one day with our children so much we would savour it. And yet, I can understand Robin Williams's character in that moment going, I hate the idea of just one day a week. I think it's a bit like that with what Jesus is saying here. When we consider eternal, abundant life relative to this good life that we might have for 80 years on this planet, the idea of going without eternal abundant life for just this life would be hateful. Good as this life might be relative to the eternal and abundant life that God desires to bring us into. The idea of just having life on this earth for 80 years would be hateful. And so it's on this basis that um, Jesus's servants and disciples are to follow him to the cross, to follow him into that sacrifice that John's gospel speaks of here in Jesus's teaching. Jesus bids that we live prepared to die to life in the world for the sake of eternal life. In this sense, he calls us to take up our crosses. And the promise uh, is, is, is listed here by Jesus that the Father honours us and will honour us if we do follow Jesus in that way. Jesus continues here in verse 20 
7, he says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, Jesus says. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And it says that a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered or others said that an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit and not for mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this, verse 33 says, to show the kind of death that he was going to die. Here we read about Jesus wrestling with the difficulty of what he is going to go through in his glorification and the glorification of the Father as he is lifted up on the cross. Of course, this is foolishness to so many, a stumbling block to so many. This passage indicates that even as God speaks to this matter audibly, it says that that God spoke, as it were, from heaven. A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. It says that those hearing it are confused. Some said, was that thunder? Others said, an angel's speaking. It wasn't clear to them. So kind of counter to the way uh, that human beings would think is what Jesus is speaking to here about what's going to happen to him and what it means, his death and glorification in that the obtaining of eternal abundant life through his death. Jesus speaks to those that are there with him and I believe now to us when he says that his glorification on the cross drives out Satan, the prince of this world, and draws all people to himself. You know, I grew up in, in the 80s and, and 90s, and um, they were uh, a, a good time in, in the kind of church circles we moved in uh, to be scared of the devil as a child. I remember the most interesting book in, uh, we didn't have a, a church bookshop at Cornerstone at all, but other churches that we'd go into from time to time, the most interesting book was this book called um, Terror in the Toy Box. I don't know if any of you remember that, but it was uh, there was a couple of them actually, and they had kids' toys on the front, and they were basically about um, the way that, uh, you know, which, which toys on the market were satanic, basically. And um, of course, when you're a kid and you see He-Man or the Ninja Turtles or the Simpsons on the front of a book, uh, and it's got a kind of spooky title, that's the one that you grab, but it was full <laughs> of stories about how Satan can kind of infiltrate uh, your kid's playroom through the toys that you might buy them. And uh, you know, that was frightening to me. We, we were good Christians, so of course we uh, didn't have He-Man or uh, we didn't watch The Simpsons when I was a kid. The, 
the, the magazines in the school library at Northside used to have the articles about the Simpsons stapled up lest, you know, we, we hear Bart or read about Bart saying cowabunga and somehow become uh, possessed by the demon of the Simpsons. But, uh, the, <laughs> of course, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that stuff was out there. You might remember the Frankie Peretti books where, uh, you know, you, you, the veil was lifted and you could see the spiritual battle that's going on in everything. Um, so, you know, I, I was scared. I was scared of, of the devil uh, when I was a kid. Uh, it was the kind of thing that played on my mind. And um, I know uh, other kids were like that too, because we used to chat about it. And against that backdrop, I remember hearing a story about uh, the the early kind of Pentecostal uh, minister, Smith Wigglesworth, great healing minister and, and evangelist. And this story, I haven't had a, had a time to check up, uh, you know, how true it is. But there, there are other stories like this about Martin Luther or Anthony the Great. Anyway, in this story, uh, Smith Wigglesworth's in bed sleeping and he wakes up in the middle of the night to find Satan uh, on the edge of his bed. And, and the story goes that Smith Wigglesworth looked at Satan and said, oh, it's only you, and rolled over and went back to sleep. That was an intriguing story for me as a child because I felt like so much of my culture was shaping me to, to be really afraid of Satan and the demonic. And yet here was this story of one of the heroes of our part of the faith who, who seemed so nonchalant in the face of Satan. What has Satan come to do? Scripture tells us our enemy. He comes to rob, to steal, and to destroy. I think what's going on here for Smith Wigglesworth is a, is a, is a grasping in who he is of what Jesus is talking about here. You know, when your feet are in eternal abundant life, when your anchor is in eternal abundant life, there is nothing that can happen to you in this life that can take that from you. If we should be afraid that Satan might rob us of things in this life, and yet we stand as inheritors of eternal abundant life. It's like losing a day in the face of eternity. And so I think we should, Jesus uh, is saying here, if we are his servants prepared to follow him to the cross, be in that position like Smith Wigglesworth where we can just roll over and go back to sleep, not because this life doesn't matter, but because we can say financial ruin, oh, it's only you. We can even say by faith, sickness, it's only you. The Christian hope is that in the face of death itself, we can say, death, where is your sting? It's only you. I am in eternal life 
through what Christ did on the cross and as his servant being willing to follow him there you know I think I've gone long enough but this is the thought that I want to leave you with are you living anchored in that reality has the cross made sense to you do you accept it are you willing to follow Jesus there because as Jesus says unless a seed falls to the ground and dies God thank you that you are glorified in this mysterious event that we are walking towards this season the cross we thank you for your great love and your willingness to go there for us we thank you for the way it is dealt with sin and death and sickness the way that we can live free from that because we are anchored if we trust in you in eternal life thank you for drawing us by this good news lord help us to live these lives of hope that draw others to this good news amen see you later